This is The Alchemy of Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Rusha Modi, and I'll talk to the most compelling and innovative leaders solving society's most wicked problems. Okay, we have another exciting episode of The Alchemy of Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Rusha Modi, a physician here in Los Angeles. And as always, the goal of this show is to talk to the smartest most creative people solving society's most wicked problems. And today we have an extra special guest, Alfie Cohen, one of the world's foremost researchers and scholars on really human behavior, parenting, and education. So thank you for being on the show today. My pleasure. Mr. Cohen has written a number of just really game-changing books, really on the paradigm of how we think about how we interact with children in society today, including unconditional parenting, Man, no grades, no homework equals better learning. He's been publicized in a number of media outlets. And if anyone can comment on the nature of schools and kids today, it would be him. So I would start off with probably the central question. I mentioned to a number of my friends that you were going to you know, eventually be on the show, all of whom have kids that are in you know elementary or, or early in their early years. And you know, they asked the question that's been on really everyone's minds for the last two years, which I'm sure you get a lot that our listeners are dying to know about, which is, are the kids okay? You know, are they doing well? And if not, why not? You know, in, in the medical field, we've seen a lot of psychiatric researchers, you know, comment as has the CDC on the escalating rates of anxiety and depression in school-aged children, which was a trend before the pandemic that has now accelerated there was a sort of a somewhat well-known study in the pediatric version of JAMA, the journal, the, the medical association, commenting on the well-being of children, documenting that they're, they're not doing okay. So how are the kids doing now in America, especially those that are in school? And, and if they're not doing well, why aren't they doing well? Well, I have to speculate here just as anyone else does. I'm not a clinician and I'm not an epidemiologist, so I'm dependent on reading the same kinds of studies rather than conducting them that anyone else paying attention is. You mentioned in passing that what appear to be trends of increasing depression and anxiety on the part of young people preceded the pandemic, and that's an important point to make. It certainly didn't help because of the pressures on families that kids were experiencing, the fact that kids for quite some time didn't know who was going to get sick. They weren't able to see their friends. Their routine was interrupted. But it appears that something else is going on, and I don't know why. I mean, I can certainly point to the kinds of things I find problematic that have existed for quite some time in this culture and in other cultures, but I can't draw a causal connection and say that because each of these possible causes has become more acute, we can link that to the conclusion that this is why anxiety and depression have gone up as well. You know, people have speculated about the the impact of social media and about the fact that there is a lot going on in the world to which anxiety or depression is a rational response. Yeah. And you look at the fact that, you know, democracy is being systematically dismantled by Republicans in this country, and they are making plans to make sure that they can never lose again. When you look at the fact that the planet is becoming increasingly, you know, less habitable, I just tweeted the other day a, a line from 
a short story writer who said, you know, I know why I'm not sleeping. What I don't understand is why right. other people are sleeping, you know. So, yeah, this is, and this is on top of the stuff that happens with respect to schooling, mm-hmm. especially in this country, where there's enormous pressure on kids, where it's not really about exploring ideas in most traditional schools. It's not about getting answers to the questions that kids find meaningful. It's about cramming forgettable facts into short-term memory to do well on bad standardized tests, whose results are actually not just meaningless, but actually often indicative when the test scores go up of a bad education that was more about test prep than about, about, about learning. The kids are made to work a second shift of academics when they get home from a full day in school, even though homework has never been shown to help kids learn more effectively, certainly never, but below the high school level. There's no research to support any kind of homework. And grades for many years have been shown to make kids less excited about learning, less likely to choose challenging tasks if given a choice, and to think in a more superficial fashion. To say nothing of the use of rewards and punishments to control kids, rather than working with them to decide how classrooms and families should run. And finally, on top of this already disturbing smoking pile, there's all the ways in which kids are set against each other with various kinds of contests, Mm -hmm. from spelling bees and awards assemblies to, of course, weekend and after-school activities where we just assume if you're going to play a game, it has to be about defeating other people. And kids learn from this that other people are potential obstacles to their own success, which is a toxic message interpersonally and psychologically. So, you know, we could take any of these things that I've just rattled off and spend a lot of time just exploring how destructive it is and what alternatives may exist But the combination on top of what's going on in our society is more than enough to explain why kids are in trouble. I mean, that was a sort of a brilliant deconstruction of kind of not only your views on really motivation and competition versus cooperation in a learning setting, but really kind of what's happening writ large. So so thank you for that. I mean, with a follow-up to COVID and it comes specifically to pedagogy, so I mean, your your central thesis, if I can sort of be so bold, is really focusing on the intrinsic the intrinsic sort of joy of learning, the, that activation of learning for its own sake, as opposed to sort of objective metrics. How does that translate in a sort of a Zoom-like environment? Because I think one thing that American sort of secondary and elementary school education is focused on that a lot of that a lot of smart people tend to focus on just in general is on objective measurements. I mean, I think very intelligent, although perhaps misguided policy experts as well as regular people that are very, you know, erudite, they like seeing objective progress. That's, that itself is something that people tend to over-index on. And so when it comes to sort of like, well, how do you measure learning in the absence of some sort of objective performance, how does that translate in a Zoom setting? So if a teacher has some interaction virtually with kids and a hybrid model of learning maybe now the future of at least some schooling what might that look like, given that you have such a focus on sort of learning for its own sake? Well, first, I've got to respectfully push back on your repeated use of the word objective. 
The use of numerical tests does not mean that they are objective. That's a lie we tell to ourselves so we can pretend that subjective human judgment is absent when, in fact, it's just concealed under numbers. And that's a topic worth exploring in its own right. I mean, if you give a multiple-choice test to kids where there is a right answer rather than discussing with them to get a sense of what they've learned and what their ideas are, that multiple-choice test is deeply flawed because there are ways in which the so-called correct answer is not necessarily more thoughtful and in which not all right answers are equally valuable, nor are two different wrong answers wrong for the same reason. A child may make a math error and get the wrong answer because of the she understands the concept, but she just made a minor calculation glitch, or she might have no idea of the concept that's going on. We don't know from this sort of thing. And the same is true with respect to giving kids standardized tests, which measure what matters least. And, you know, when you look at a math test that a teacher gives, the teacher's decision of what topics to cover, how much time to spend on each, the extent to which each is reflected in a test, and so on, all reflect subjective judgments. So I'm not interested in the, Whenever I hear somebody say, how do you measure this stuff, whether it's online or offline, I always stop folks and say, Remind them, as Albert Einstein put it, not everything that counts that can be not everything that can be counted counts, and not everything that counts can be counted. Or as an education expert, Linda McNeil once said, measurable outcomes may be the least significant results of learning. So how do we assess learning is the different question. You know, it's if we ask, how do we measure it? We've already ruled out all the most significant ways of assessing learning. And there's a whole library full of what's called in the field authentic assessment, where kids do performances that demonstrate what they're not only what they know, but what they're able to do with what they know. A test is never necessary. And the best teachers don't use tests in order to get a sense of what kids understand. And you never need a grade, a letter or number, to report what the teacher's understanding is of what the kid knows. I don't think this whole question, though, maps neatly onto online, offline. You can do good assessment in person by sitting next to kids and talking with them. In fact, that's the word assess comes from the root, the Latin meaning, to sit beside and to really listen to kids, to get a sense of where their understanding falls short, what they already understand. That's harder to do on a computer, just looking at a kid in two dimensions. But you can certainly do bad numerical sort of tests online or off, so it doesn't map neatly. But you ended your question by invoking the idea of the value of learning in its own sake, and quite apart from the question of how we assess how successful teachers have been. I think it's critical for that intrinsic motivation, that disposition to learn, that honoring and nourishing kids' curiosity. That has to be the North Star that we navigate by. So anything that makes kids lose that curiosity and become less excited about figuring stuff out, that's going to be something that's problematic. And that includes homework, according to the research, 
grades, according to the research, and probably doing too much stuff online where it's harder to sustain interest. So you can't bypass or do an end run around interest in learning and force feed kids knowledge or skills. You have to encourage them and support them in their interest in learning. And when that happens, when kids are really juiced about what they're doing with proper support, they tend to do it well. I mean, that's really such a a remarkable, if not sort of bold declaration of how how education should be. One one sort of follow-up question that a lot of people had is, okay, let's grant you your your central premise that we need to really move away from objective, if not, in your interpretation, misguided measurements to something that is really more at heart with what kids naturally can do when they're supported, which is activate their curiosity, ask what's going on in the world around them, and, and find ways to explore that. A lot of parents that I know, and this has been commented on extensively in the media as well, are now also worried about how to, this might be poorly worded, but like how to make up for lost ground, quote unquote, with their children. A lot of parents are worried that, you know, their child's development has been stunted to a certain degree intellectually, intrinsically when it comes to their joy of learning, certainly in a more traditional way with, you know, traditional assessments of standardized information, as well as their social development. So are there things that people, educators, parents, families should be doing when it comes to their kids that have spent, in some cases, two years basically away from other children in a traditional in-person class setting in order to, if not catch up, but at least reactivate some of the things that are so central to you? Well, we have to unpack that because you've combined, braided together a whole lot of different things where my response would be very different for each. So there's the non-academic, non-intellectual, let's call it mental health issues and social issues. And here, yes, I think being apart, being away from school for many kids has been trouble. And we would do the same thing that, you know, any kind of forced period of isolation or stress is, which is, you know, listen, listen to kids and take them seriously when they tell us they're upset, support them in reconnecting, to their peers and do all else we can do to shore up their mental health and their healthy development so they flourish, welcoming the opportunity to reconnect. So that's all the sort of the mental health social stuff. And I had no particular expertise there, except insofar as that mental health is undermined by a lot of common practices that both parents, traditional parents and traditional schools tend to fall back on. But then we have to distinguish between claims of learning loss in an academic sense that we've been reading about from real intellectual issues of development. There's a big difference between the intellectual and the merely academic. And it turns out that claims of learning loss when kids were away from school don't really add up because they're based purely on bad standardized tests. I see. And not just that, but on standardized tests that merely measure the rote memorization of a bunch of facts. Now, it is true that during the summer when kids are away from school or during a pandemic, if they're away from school, kids may forget a lot of the stuff they were taught. They may forget how to work a binomial equation, you know, or the difference between a participle and a predicate. 
And in fact, we tend to forget a lot of what we were taught in traditional classrooms once school is over anyway. But that's not an argument that we need to cram more facts in in a remedial fashion to make up for this so-called learning loss. That's sort of an indictment of traditional education more generally. So if kids were helped to design an experiment to figure out how to isolate a variable and know what's causing these ants to grow more, rather than just memorizing, you know, the four stages of mitosis or whatever. If kids are helped to create a poem that grabs a reader and think about writing from the reader's perspective, rather than just you know, memorizing the difference between a simile and a metaphor. If kids are helped to understand mathematical concepts to construct a meaning around ideas like place value or equivalence, rather than just memorizing facts and algorithms in math, you don't forget that. You don't lose it. That doesn't slip away when you're out of school for a summer or because of COVID. So to the extent people talk about this kind of learning loss, What we ought to be doing is asking hard questions about the way we've been teaching online or offline all along so that we can emphasize the kind of meaningful learning that can't be lost. And the intellectual stuff, kids' questions and making sense of ideas can go on at home as well as at school, can happen online and offline. But there the real question is not how do you make up for lost time, it's How do we make sure that that meaningful kind of student-centered learning where kids are understanding ideas from the inside out instead of merely practicing skills and memorizing facts, how do we make sure there's a lot more of that going on going forward? I mean, I I mean, I love that answer of this may not be just COVID, an opportunity to catch up, but it may be a new start, hopefully a fresh start, a different path forward where maybe there's a major course correction in how we educate kids. And I think that answer that you provide hopefully is the catalyst for larger discussions about, you know, really how kids are allowed to be or not to be, certainly as it comes to learning. You know, I I could not do this interview without asking a question that might be a bit of a stretch, but I think is related to really the cultural commentary that you've been so articulating, well articulating for a number of years, which is sort of the college admission scandal, which certainly was based here in Los Angeles a few years ago, where, you know, for those that don't recall, a number of sort of falsified applications to to high-end elite colleges were attempted by, you know, wealthy families, including Hollywood actors, in order to get their kids, you know, access to schools and part of this sort of college race. How much of that is tied to this culture that emphasizes, you know, inappropriate objective assessments how much of this is tied to your indictment, really, of how traditional education works? Or is that something sort of distinct and that phenomenon, that scandal sort of is unrelated? Well, I think it occurs to me now that an interesting analogy is that when COVID happened, it sort of pulled off the veil and allowed us to see disturbing truths about our society. It drove not just the fact that we haven't invested in a robust public health system, but also some of the ugly hyper-individualism that says, why should I wear a mask, you know, if I don't care about, I don't care about anybody but me? How dare you? Any kind of request or requirement 
to support the community and others' well-being is regarded as an outrage, as tyranny from a vast you know, number of people in this country, it revealed a lot of things that were unpleasant structurally and attitudinally. And in a way, this college admission scandal of the very rich did the same thing. It wasn't just significant in its own right that these people cheated in these ways, but it showed us that some kind of unfairness is built in through the whole process of college admissions and the whole hierarchy where there's a handful of elite schools that are regarded to, to be of higher quality just because they're more rejective, which is a better term than selective. You know, they try to get a lot of people to apply so they can turn them down and thus become more appealing. And we make sure that it's very hard to get in unless you have your family has the resources to do test prep coaching, to go on expensive trips, be involved in multiple extracurriculars, and to basically give up large portions of your childhood to defeat other people. So there's issues of race and class, but also notions that children don't matter except insofar as they bring glory to their parents by managing to get into clubs that most people can't get into. There's whole layers of attitudes here that excellence is something that, by definition, everybody can't reach, can't attain, as well as... So, to the extent we aren't just looking at what those parents did to buy their way, their kids' way into selective colleges, but look at what's going on more generally in terms of college admissions and what college is for and the difference between a college that's good and one that's merely elitist, you know, where we conflate those two. Are we going to take advantage of this opportunity to look at the bigger picture? Are we going to get too focused on just the details of this particular example? You know, that there's examples of similar to that all the time. Are we going to look at how the, the police screwed up and let kids be shot in Texas and just spend most of our time reflecting on what these police did they shouldn't? Or are we going to look at the systemic issue of the number one public health crisis for children in America, which is the ready access of guns, because we have this, we fetishize devices whose sole purpose is to harm and kill and put that above the safety of children. We have this tendency to look at the particulars, the anecdotal, the individual, to talk about how kids can develop stress reduction techniques or build more resilience, rather than looking at the structural factors, the policies and programs in place in our country and in our schools that make it more necessary to be resilient in the first place. I see this particularly in affluent schools, where the kids are pressured into taking courses that are very difficult, not necessarily better, they're more rigorous, but they're not necessarily high quality, like advanced placement courses, and to do tons of homework and so on. And this circles back to where we started with the pressures that kids are under, the anxiety and depression. And instead of asking, how do we change schools into places of learning and challenge what we assume to be true about things like homework and grades and competition, we instead, after the fact, try to make them 
give them tools to deal with it. You know, it's sort of like a factory that's pumping pollution in, in its smokestacks in the air, but it very kindly distributes respirators to the neighbors. That's what I think of when I see these stress reduction workshops for kids rather than helping us address the causes. I love that answer. And I think that anyone that's listening, I highly encourage you to just rewind and listen to the last three minutes, because even if you don't agree with interventions, this is probably the best analysis of why American education in the elementary through K through 12 region is so broken and what that means for America as a whole. So thank you for that. I think to end, I'm going to quote you, actually, because it ties into some things you just mentioned where you wrote, perhaps it's time to rescue the essence of excellence, a more common sense understanding of the idea that is also more democratic. Everyone may not get there, but at least in theory, all of us could. That, I feel, is really the avenue forward, is it not? A reassessment of what it means to be excellent in a theoretically at least democratic society. And if we're not able to get that right with kids, where does that leave the rest of us? Yep, that has implications more widespread for how we assume that excellence is a scarce commodity that where we have to be set against one another. So that deals with one of the multiple strands we've talked about in this half hour, competition, which is one of the things that I think gets in the way of excellence as well as good relationships and psychological health. Excellent. Well, I know our time is short, so I can't thank you enough. This has been a brilliant sort of primer, if you will, and so sort of really the, the fascinating insights that you have on, on educating parenting. So thank you so much. So the guest is Alfie Cohn. Books include Punished by Rewards and Unconditional Parenting, 14 books at all, as always. A number of well-regarded and popular articles on his blog, as well as in media outlets. The website is alfiecone.org. Thank you again for another fascinating episode here. My pleasure. I appreciate your interest. All right. This has been another exciting episode of The Alchemy of Politics. Thank you for listening to another exciting show of The Alchemy of Politics. If you found value in this episode, please rate and review it, as well as share it with others. Go to www.alchemyofpolitics.com to learn more and become an alchemist. Remember, solutions, not shouting.